Morning, everyone. So, any thoughts, questions? Uh, you've mentioned several times, uh, commented about uh, uh, taking uh, too literal, uh, being too literal in, in reading Bhagavatam. There was something that I read in Chaitanya uh, I don't, uh, I don't recall what chapter may have been about Sotavoma, Pachaya, uh, in where Sri uh, Chaitanya was so ecstatic that uh, uh, his limbs were withdrawn within the body like a tortoise, and then uh, uh, his limbs were extended and disjointed. Is uh, uh, the Lord can do anything? So should it be taken in that with that? that viewpoint that this is not only possible, that it's possible, but it could be that way. Uh, mm-hmm. There's nothing to prevent it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I understand your question. Yeah. So, with regard to the general advice that you're referring to about taking things literally, it's good to ask because all of these books, different types of books, are written in different ways with different sometimes the same aim in mind but it's a different type of book so like in the, in the if you will the within the broad brush of the Vedic literature there are all types of literatures there are the Vedas there's the Puranas and we've been talking about these two and then there's the poetry the Kavyas the Champus the, the Sahitya uh, so it's all very uh, different type of writing, different type of literary approach, and, and they're all a, there's a specific style to it and rules to writing it, and so on and so forth. So, without being acquainted with all of that, then it's hard to draw out some of the subtleties of it and appreciate it uh, as much as if you have that kind of background. And as I said, in the Veda, the, the emphasis is on the sound itself. The word, Shabda, is the emphasis. In the Puranas, the emphasis is on the meaning behind the word. How the word's being used, telling the message of the Veda in a story. And you've got to draw the artha, the meaning. What's the purport of the story? Or what are they trying to say here? And the examples are given. Like, if a king speaks, he just gives orders. That's the Vedas. If a friend speaks to you, then it's different. You can inquire. He may say, like I've given an example. If a friend says, can you bring me some water? Then you can say, you can ask him, what do you really want? Because water might be hard to get. It's far away. got to go to the well. Do you just want to quench your thirst? Because I've got some juice in the refrigerator. And then he could, yeah, that's all I want. So that's my point. I want to quench my thirst. So with a friend, you can do like, so the piranhas are like that. But then the other, the, the Rashastras, you know, these champus, and, uh, and they're all they're all different in themselves too. But basically, the Rashastra, there's a whole list of things that have to be in it if it's going to be a, a Rashastra. It's to be written in a certain way, and so on and so forth. And the language there, the emphasis is on the implied meaning. Like you take, for example, in Brahmaragita in Bhagavatam. Now, you know, in Bhagavatam, you have many things going on. You have philosophy, 
you have the influence of Sankhya, Yoga, and Vedanta. These are the of the six darshans, I mean, the main philosophies of the of the time. And then you have you have theology, you have philosophy, and in the particularly in the sections about Krishna Lila, then you have emphasis on it's it's poetic and. Uh, it is throughout in many respects, and therefore it's, it's called it calls itself a Rashastra. And at the very onset, when it says Nigama Kalpataro Galitam Falam Sukumukadamrtadravasamitam Pibata Bhagavatam Rasam Alayam Mohurahorasitabhubi Bhavaka. And so it's poetry, and it's meant for people who, in the literary sense, who know all the rules of that, and, 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 and they can understand what implied meaning is and so forth. But in a higher, of course, spiritual sense, so it could be taken as beautiful literature. It can be taken as philosophy, theology, it can be taken as scripture, spiritually, and so there's different ways to take it. Of course, we take it scripturally, but at the same time, if you know the language and so forth, then you can better understand what's being conveyed. So I was giving an example, like in Brahma Gita, where Radharani is speaking to the bumblebee, and it, when she calls him like Sarangri, like six-legged, six, you six-legged creep, she's basically saying, what kind of messenger are you? In this section, Uddhava has come to bring a message to the Vrajbhasis from Krishna. And it's a very philosophical message, seeking to pacify them in their pangs of separation. As you would, you know, an ordinary person who's lamenting because of loss of a friend or a lover or, or something like that. You say, after all, Prabhu, you're not the body. You've got to understand that you know every providence brings people together and separates people. It's beyond our control. You try to give them the bigger picture, give them some philosophy. You should be detached. You're not the body. Think of that. This is the kind of message that Krishna sent to the gopis and the inhabitants of Vrindavan through Uddhava, who's a big shastravit. You know, he's, he's the most knowledgeable person in. And Dwarka, therefore, is the, he's the advisor of Krishna. He's Krishna's pundit. It's pretty good. If you're Krishna's pundit, you have to be pretty learned. <laughs> so, you know, as you can see as we talk about it, there's a, there's a lot of meaning. And he sent the wisest person there to speak to them. And But he was bewildered himself how to give the message. Because they're crying for Krishna. And he's supposed to tell them, don't cry. But you're supposed, supposed to cry for Krishna also. <laughs> so like, what are these supposed to do? It's really bewildering for him. He's supposed to tell ordinary people don't cry, but, he, but they're crying for Krishna. That's the goal. At the same time, anyway, seeing the extent of their absorption, we, you know, we're told that Krishna sent Uddhava to bring a message to the gopis, but he sent Uddhava to get a message from the gopis. What is the standard of their devotion? And, and then for him to broadcast it to the world because he's Shastravit. He's such a pundit. So if he says it, you know, we have to take it seriously. This is the idea. And that's, of course, what he did. He did deliver the message, and he saw their reaction to it. And then he just wandered around in Vrindavan for a couple of months, singing a couple of prayers in praise of of the gopis and, and aspiring to that if he could have the measure of their devotion, just as a, as a blade of grass, that he'd be doing well, and so on and so forth. Famous verses. Anyway, Buddha came to bring the message, but she ignores him in his presence, and then he, she starts talking to a bumblebee. 
Brahmaragita, the song of the, of the bumblebee, in like the 47th chapter of the 10th canto. So she starts talking to the bumblebee. She calls him a six-armed you know, fellow because he had six arms. You know, bumblebee has six arms. But if you know the language, you know, you can understand what she's saying. Of course, with the help of a, of a commentator, you, know, you, you can understand even if they don't mention the particulars. But if you know the language and how it works, it means a two-legged person is a civilized person. A four-legged person is, you know, a creature, is an animal, and so they're less intelligent than a two-legged person. This is the idea. What to speak of a six-legged person? And she's saying, you know, she's saying basically, this guy sends me a six-legged person to give me a message. So what kind of person is he? And this way, she's criticizing Krishna. And she's she's down on him, and, and so on and so forth. So. That's what I mean in in Rashastra by implied meaning. It doesn't mean that the Leela disappears or something like that. But there's so many implied things. It's and then if you understand that, you can understand get her mood and what she's talking about. She's talking about a bumblebee, but she's calling, but she's really calling Krishna a fool. He's less intelligent than a four-legged creature. He sent me a six-legged creature. So what, how bad must he be to bring a message? And I'm a two-legged person, and so this doesn't make any sense. And he's a fool, and she's criticizing him like this. But you might, you know, you wouldn't be able to appreciate that, perhaps, without. So this is the whole idea. This Rashastra is like this. It's very, uh, it's all implied meaning. This is a language of love. I don't mean to imply that that the leela disappears, but it means that when talking about it, then there are so many things that you will miss if you don't know the language and you know and of course it's more than knowing the language if you enter into the if you become a rasika then you can you can speak the language and that's rich literary from a literary point of view very rich such as the Bhagavatam and then the writings of the Goswamis you know, Muktacharya and Lalita Madhava Vidagda Madhava all these books what these books are really doing for the most part these books are all explaining one verse which Rupa Goswami composed to explain what he was going to teach. What Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was about. Shuddha Bhakti, pure devotion. And that's based on a verse from Nard Muni's Nard Pancharata where he says, Sarvopadi Vanir Muktam Tat Parat Vanir Nirmalam Vishikena Rishikesha Sevanam Bhakti Ruchate. So it's a basic definition of Shuddha Bhakti. What the marginal characteristics of Shuddha Bhakti and the primary characteristics. It's Hasta Lakshan and Sarup Lakshan of Bhakti. Marginal characteristics means it's not this. It's not covered by, by Gyan. It's not covered by desire for karma, material acquisition. It's not, in the words, it's not performed in such a way that Bhakti becomes subordinate to a desire to get something materially by the bhakti or to to get liberation by bhakti, which is the result of knowledge. So bhakti not performed for those aims, uncovered by that, not inhibited by, by those desires. Those are like Rupa Goswami called them witches. So if you've got a witch in your heart haunting it, then these desires are haunting. That's a problem. So anyway, Marginal characteristics of bhakti, what it's not, and then what it is. Anukulena Krishna, Anushilana Bhakti Ruptama. Favorable, devotional service to Krishna, rendered favorably, and then it's pleasing to Krishna. So, like Kamsa wasn't wasn't doing 
uh, or these so many demons, they weren't doing bhakti there, fighting with Krishna. That's why Krishna had to have his own people come and fight with him, the, or Narayan, the gatekeepers, because other people, fight, demons are fighting with him, but they don't, then it's not favorable. Mother Yashoda's fighting with him, it's favorable. It's bhakti. Anyway, so all these books, through leelas, the dramas of Rupa Goswami, they're explaining what is Shuddha Bhakti. And so there is a philosophical point that they seek to make. And that has to be drawn out, of course. Because if we apply that in their life, then we can enter into those leelas, those experiences, and understand all the subtleties of it. And, and so all the implied, that's implied there. And so anyway, I don't want you to misunderstand the idea that there's implied meaning and that the literal meaning is not everything. It's not in the way in uh, in the uh, like for the Advaitins they'll say well what the scripture speaks about prominently like for example that Krishna is eternal his form is eternal his name all his qualities his pastimes so much emphasis on that that should all be taken in directly and what should be taken directly is those few statements that say he has no form he's formless and and uh, nameless and so on. Now those have to be taken indirectly. And that's an indirect way of saying his form is nothing like ours. And it isn't. And we talked a little bit about this last night. If you study, I was quoting Chaitanya Charitamrita, there's a description Krishna Kaviraj gives of the form of Radharani. And what does he say? He's describing Mahabhav Swarupani. Her hair is, is this emotion, her eyes are this emotion, her her waist is this emotion, her breast is this emotion, her sari is this emotion. So it's trying to give you an idea. It's like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a form made out of bhava. You have no acquaintance with bhava, so you, it's hard to understand. <laughs> comes to us depicted in art or through the acharya, it comes in the form of the deity, the Lord's, the Lord's form appears, and so forth. But that's to help us get bhava, so we can understand truly what it is. So, in this way, it's not that the Leela doesn't exist or the form of the Lord doesn't exist, but it's, it's more than what what you can draw from a literal meaning. And the Leela is because uh, we could say all things possible there. And uh, that's, of course, an important point to make. From logic alone, then so many things are impossible, it would appear. But from love's standpoint, then all things are possible. So, to try to fit it all within our brain, that's, a, that's the wrong approach. Uh, at the same time, we should use our brain to draw meaning from it that will apply practically to our life and our practice so that we can transcend the limits of mind, reasoning, and so on and so forth. So, at, at any rate, with regard to the specifics of your question, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's ecstasies and the kind of contortions and so forth that he experience to these are to be taken literally. These are considered historical accounts of, of, the, of the effects of his uh, bhava. And um, the idea is that he's Krishna. He's trying to take the position of Radha. And it's causing him difficulty. Radharani is experiencing all those things, but her teeth aren't falling out and her you know, so on. Their limbs aren't stretching out. It also means this, that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's lila is lila of acharya. So he's teaching as example. It means that in this body, the body of the 
sadaka, when the sadaka attains prem, he can only experience up to prem. But the brajlila is development of prem, development in terms of in- intensity, sneha, man, pranai, rag, anurag, bhav, mahabhav. These can't be experienced in the sadhaka day. So therefore the devotee takes birth in Krishna Lila, wherever Krishna Lila is being performed. And in, in a suitable form, those are developed up to his sentiment, in accordance with his sentiment. If he's sakirasa to pranaya, if he's in vatsalirasa, and so forth. And, uh, and uh, gopi bhav up to mahabhav, or priyanarmasak up to anurag or bhav, before mahabhav, sometimes bhav and mahabhav in this equation, or in this list, are equated. But at any rate, it also it's also a way of saying to us, the prem cannot, beyond prem, you need another body. can't be contained in that. That's the death of the devotee then. But Mahabharata did experience all these kinds of symptoms, and that therefore the Goswamis, studying them, they articulated what that was. All sattvika bhavas, all at once, in the highest stage, you know, there's smoking, there's lit, there's bright, lightened, you know, flaming, with so many details. All extremes, all at once, never been seen before, this kind of thing. Sarvabhoma got a whiff of that when Mahaprabhu came and fell before Lord Jagannath. He was astounded. And that was in Madhya-lila, Anti-lila, and all these extraordinary symptoms appeared in him. Therefore, historians describe him as an epileptic. That's the best they could come up with, because they don't believe in all these other things. They're thinking, well, he must have been an epileptic. He had a fit, he fell down, and so on and so forth. Hmm? Yeah, he would explain himself like that sometimes to people who weren't qualified to understand. We tend to take it literally. Rupa Goswami discusses these different uh, types of symptoms in his writing, but some of them like bleeding, bleeding in ecstasy. He says it's so rare, isn't it? it's practically never experienced, so he doesn't elaborate upon it. But when Krishna is describing Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he gives these symptoms to him as well. So I suppose, I never thought about it in the way you're asking, we always tend to take it literally, but it, it's it's reasonable to and acceptable to perhaps to look at it in such as if this, as if Krishna Skavaraj is bringing all these symptoms together to say such was the measure of his frame, his bhav, so extraordinary, hmm? and uh, taking somewhat of a, a literary license. But my tendency has always been to take it. Uh, Literally, limbs going in like a tortoise. There's one kind of a tree. Yeah, erupting limbs. And limbs going in the body. Hmm. It would also say if joints would separate, there'd be like a distance of. Yeah, well, we thought we'd never seen anything like this. It's some Aishvarya that's supposed to inspire you. Pay attention. Well, what is that? It's also another thing. It said in it said in the text itself that uh, another lesson to be drawn from it. It said that Bhaya Visha Jala 
ভিতরে আনন্দময় কৃষ্ণের প্রেমের আটবুটটা চরিত
fall in love with one another before they become infatuated. That's the idea, but often it doesn't happen. And so it's like we tell them what they need to hear, but how well they can hear it. There's no stopping it. You know, they want to get married. We tell them, well, you want to think about this. You might want to think about that, and try to bear down on it with reason. And and they probably go away hating you. You know, half the time. <laughs> they try to stop it. Uh, so I'm sure you do a good job of it. And, and, they, and they don't they don't feel like that. But if you try to get in the way, it just causes it to rage and rage and rage and rage. So. It's a way of talking about the nature of this attachment to Krishna, the intensity of it. Because, you know, if you're going to speak about something that you have no experience of, you try to give an example of something that you do have experience to help you. It's like the Upanishads say, what, if you want to know what is God, one thing in the world that's most like God is you. So think about that. Your consciousness, not matter. That's not the whole story, obviously. That's like telling a person in a dark cave who's lived in a cave his whole life that you try to tell him about sun. What sun is like? What are you going to tell him? Sun's vegetation. It's it's it's, it's a whole you know it's, it's the life of the world practically. Because of sun, there's you know water comes from sun. It's amazing, and heat comes from sun. And and uh, you know you can cool with it, you can light with it, you can, you can. It's like amazing commodity, substance. And you tell a person who lived in a cave his whole life about it. And so you maybe you make a little crack, and he won't come out. He says, "You can't believe in that." It's just a, what we're talking about is a fantasy. He has no experience of anything like that. So you crack a little hole in the wall, and sh- little sh- beam of light comes in. You say, "This is sounds like this." Wow, that's fascinating in itself. You've never seen any light even. Wow. Give some idea. So you punish God, speak like that, and say, You are God. If you want to know what God's like, like you, you got to read on. There's more to be said than that. So the point, anyway, is that we, the scriptures try to give us some example from our own experience to help us appreciate. But if we take it too literally, then it becomes a problem. And people take it literally. And then they go get a bead bag and try to find somebody else's wife. And it goes on. Mostly here in the West people people do that too, but they don't they don't think of it that it's that it's spiritual because we put enough probably put enough emphasis on that. But but this is the kind of thing that Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasadaka would preach against. Guy gets a bead bag and goes to live in the jungle and then Finds a partner, somebody else's wife, and, and this is how he experienced parakia, and makes a mess out of the whole thing. You can't take it too literally. You understand that becomes a problem. And the leela is beyond explanation. Therefore, it's good to understand the, the philosophical underpinning. You know, when a lot of questions come up, you know, cultural questions. Like we were talking, what to feed Krishna? Oh, so he's Indian, so he, should, he only eats pakoras and olive and these things. We don't offer him anything else. As you go too far with that, it becomes becomes mundane. You really have to offer with love. So if you love something else that falls within the parameters of that, it could be edible, that's pure, it's vegetarian, or it's then offer that. That that way you you offer your heart. If you love pizza. And you can offer 
pizza with more love than than, than halava if you don't love halava. If you really don't like halava, but you really like pizza, offer pizza. You'll be able to give more love. You'll be like, well, I'm going to offer the best. This is the greatest thing. I feel like that. It's just so tastes so good to you offer it to, to Bhagwan. Then you're able to give more of your heart. So by whatever means you can give more of your heart, that's the idea. Like you take in the Leela, okay, another example of what I'm saying. In the Leela, the women are less intelligent. Well, kind of. They're uneducated. Well, then again, everybody is in the Raja Leela practically. All the cowherds and everything. But the ladies, they stand in the back, let's say. So, you know, people want to take things from the Leela like this literally, and then they want to incorporate it here and put that in place. And this way they think they're approaching the Leela. But what's really going on there is it's bhava. It manifests in a particular way as great mystics will talk about it and so forth. And we find from mystic to mystic within the Gaudi tradition there are different ways in which the same leelas have been talked about and experienced and so on. So don't get caught up in the, in the details. You're not supposed to import or try to import the details from there as much as you are the spirit of it. So you want to create a situation that will foster the awakening of bhav. And you want to do it for everybody, because Mahaprabhu wants to give it to everybody. So according to the time and place that you're in, you have to use your intelligence. And, and if you put a sign out in the front, you know, we, we want to be Krishna conscious here. All women stand in the back and, and, you know, and don't say anything. You know, you be heard, don't be, you know, what they used to say? Seen but not heard or something like that. So then you're going to get in the way of intelligent, educated ladies, which is the norm in, in society cultivating bhav. So this is an example of taking it too literal. You want to take it literal, another way to take it literal that is harmless and maybe even helpful. Take the literal meaning. Like, you'll find things in descriptions of the Leela like um, these kind of ideas like if you clip your fingernails and don't clean up and throw them away, ghosts will come. Things like that. Or the cat, you know, what are you saying? The cat runs across, you know, then you have to go do these mantras. You'll find things like that in the Leela, right? And Prabhupada would even say some of those things. So now devotees would take them literally and then, and, and then they look like just superstitious people to educated people. But you can take it literally in this way. That goes on in the Leela. In the Leela it's like that. You understand? That's part of it, what makes it what it is. So it's real, really real. But at the same time, it applies there in a way that it doesn't apply here. If you want to bear down on the, what the philosophy is, the teaching is, with reason and so forth, then you have to sort these, these things out. And you can say, well, that's just a superstition. You don't really have to worry about it. Ghosts aren't going to come. Or thieves, or whatever it was. You know, or, there's a thousand things like that. Thousand and eight such things, and so you you could just say, well, that, that's this you know superstition. We don't because you know, people will think you're crazy, and you will be. Hmm? <laughs> so that's not going to happen. You know, try it. <laughs> try it. See if a thief comes tonight. You know? <laughs> so then you try it. It doesn't happen. Then you lose faith because you've put so much emphasis on the literal, and you haven't had a good guide to help you understand all these things in a dynamic way, and then you start losing faith. But you, what you really uh, attach yourself to is only these details. You've missed the substance then. You don't understand how they're real and how they're not real. 
how they're real in the Leela. But at a certain point, to cultivate them and believe them won't be useful. When they become mad, and that's what it's like. People will think you're mad if you believe in these things. So become mad. If you become mad and believe in these things, people will think you're extraordinary. You understand? If you become mad with bhav, and then you talk about these things, people will, they won't be bothered by it. They'll be attracted to what you're the substantially what you're about, and hopefully they'll you know they'll gravitate towards towards that and catch that. And sometimes they don't. They they, they come in on that basis, but then they gravitate towards the fringe, and then they get confused. They take the whole everything literally, and this this becomes a problem. So the place for using your intelligence, but your intelligence has to be trained also. Your thinking has to be trained, so you don't think outside of the parameters of what bhakti is. In the name of being open-minded and not being literal, you end up going outside of what bhakti is. So, like astrology. How much weight are you going to put on astrology? I wouldn't put too much weight on it. <laughs> uh, I remember, well, there's a number of them. Of the really good astrologers in Iskon missed some real important things in their own charts that happened to them. That you'd think they would have known that wasn't going to happen. And, you know, they were... They wouldn't have gone down that road. <laughs> Some really bizarre things. You know, another way you say it's not the age of astrology in this age. It's, you know, it's a, but real astrologers were mystics and they, they could meditate on the chart. And so, anyway, but besides that, I mean, it's in comparison to modern science, this is, this is you know, superstitious who we've seen. Obviously, there's something going on you can find but to read it properly and, and all mostly what goes on it's, it's, it's just superstition but in Krishna Krishna has an astrologer that's how he finds out you know more information how he will meet with Radha and all these kind. that's all going on in the Leela there it's wonderful and beautiful and, and uh, charming and so forth but to apply it in a literal way here is, becomes problematic and may impede us from going there when we come to the point where we're trying to harmonize our heart with our head. Our heart's been captivated by this. We're charmed. Now we're going to bear down on it. We're really going to read the books. What's this really all about? You know? I'm going to really get into bhakti here. You know? So my guru left so many books. I'm going to read them. I'm going to study them. And then you, as you start to study, you find it seems like a contradiction over here. You know, Haranyakasipu stood on his toes for 10,000 years after his son was born. And after he got off his toes, his son was still only five years old. What's going on here? There's a problem. There's a contradiction here. There's one over there. Then you have, you have to grow here. You have to say, oh, maybe it's like this. And it's, not. it's all these details. He's making a point here. The story's making a point. And then so many points are drawn from it. You capture those points, you apply them in your life. Then you can go to the land where all things are possible, where someone can stand on his toes for 10,000 years and the sun can still only be five. And, and that's the idea of the Leela. Any, anything's possible, all things possible. In the land of the mind, as malleable as it is, and as far as you can stretch it, you know, which is quite a bit, still, you're going to find reason is going to find limitations. Intellect is a dead thing, so it bears down exclusively without any aid 
on the soul, soul will disappear. God will disappear. It will make soul dead, it will make God dead. Therefore, it's not the proper instrument for going there. We should use our intellect. When faith is awakened, and faith means what? Faith means descending. Real knowing comes from up to down. If God wants to show himself to us, then we can see, we can know, otherwise not. So a big outreach in this connection is, this is what scripture is, is extending himself to us. It requires intellect to read the scripture. So now you're using the intellect to foster your faith, which is the vehicle for going there. Faith is the vehicle for going there. Responding to the outreach of Godhead. So, uh, this is again harmonizing the heart, tender heart with the head. And in the, that process, one can become an atheist. But if one doesn't do that, one remains a Kanishtadikari, which is, which is like nowhere. It's like materialistic devotee. I mean, the two just don't go together. It's an oxymoron. Prakrita Bhakta. The Kanishtadikari is, Vaishnava is just the gener- generosity of the Madhyamadikari and Uttamadikari to ex- include us within the fold of Vaishnavism. And how to come beyond that? Well, and you have to undergo this exercise. Because Shraddha means, again, faith, but what is it faith in? Faith in the descent. Faith that comprehensive knowing, perfect knowing, which is the kind of knowledge that will inform perfect action, which will beget perfect happiness, which is what everyone wants. That comes from up and down. It's revelation. It's revelation. So to get perfect knowledge, you have to have a perfect method. So the perfect method is Perfection exercises its relation, itself in relation to imperfection and can do the things that can't be done by the imperfect. The infinite can make the finite know itself by its infinite prowess. Otherwise, mathematically, finite cannot know the infinite, cannot control it, but it allows itself to be controlled. This is bhakti, so this is the love outreach of God towards us, so to speak. And so this faith is in faith and revelation, that's what it is. And a large body of that is the sacred texts. So we need Shastriya Shraddha, faith that's strengthened by understanding of Scripture. That's in our interest. So this thing calls on the a spiritual application of intellect. And we learn eventually how to, how to reason spiritually, reason to foster the argument or the position of the Scripture and explain it and support it and so forth in time and circumstance and it's an ongoing discussion scripture is an ongoing discussion of revelation and its significance so to bring out more light and so forth it's all called Shastra Yukti this is what devotees learn to do and learning to do that strengthens their faith not doing that because again you know in, in doing that well you unleash this monster of your intellect and you could do away with your faith. It's possible. So it has to be done under good guidance. If it's not done because you're afraid to do it, because if you start to think about it, you get doubts, then you don't do it. You just remain a Kanishtadikari and that's nowhere. Madhyamadikari is characterized by discrimination. That means the intellect is functioning. 
however much you have of it, and you apply it. And there's a way. This is the way to apply. How to take lust out of it instead of having it in, you know, make plans and discriminate how to gratify my senses better. <laughs> you take the lust out of it, and you, so you apply it to Gita and to Bhagavatam and so forth. And then as you read Bhagavatam and use your intellect like this, it keeps telling you over and over again: your intellect is nothing. Your intellect is nothing. Your intellect is nothing. It tries to keep it in place even while you're using it, so it won't rear its ugly face and do more harm than good. It has to be harnessed. It's so subtle because it looks like it's just tame and gentle and intellectless, you know, to be polite and considerate. And, uh, it's a beast, actually. It has such... so, so dangerous. So to, to harness that, use it, this is what Bhagavatam tries to do. It invites you to, to bear down on it with your intellect and then reveals the shortcoming of your intellect at the same time in the context of strengthening your faith, which is the real, really the vehicle for going there. It's subordinate to the soul and would speak of God, so it won't... God refuses to answer to that. If you want to bring God into court, and the intellect will be the jury, he's not going to show. He's a no-show. And the intellect, what will do then? He's on him. We sure warrant for his arrest. We're issuing a warrant for the arrest of God. He didn't show. He should be abolished. This whole God idea should be put in jail, imprisoned. It's imprisoning people. This is the verdict. No, he doesn't show up in that court. He thinks it's the kangaroo court. That's all. As they say, this is a meaningless court. He's not going to show up there. He's been tried and convicted and everything. He could care less. By faith, we can know. By revelation, in other words. And this doesn't deny the use of intellect. At a certain point, we may, in the course of training it, we may have to give it a slap and say, don't ask that question. Like the nice story I've told before, Dr. Kapoor, Adi Keshavadas, one of Prabhupada's god brothers, who was a scholar also, and he joined Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. He was, he was a scholar and he was uh, trained in uh, Dvaita Vedanta. He was pretty good at it. He was a young man. And some of the disciples of Bhaktisiddhanta Sannyasis met him in, in the preaching and they, they tried to convince him. And they couldn't, you know, the arguments from both sides of Vedanta were, were such that they, they couldn't really defeat him. He couldn't defeat them. But anyway, they said, anyway, we can't defeat you on this ground. But you come and see our Guru Maharaj and he will defeat you. So they arranged a darshan for Dr. Kapoor with Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. They told Saraswati Thakur that he's a very nice boy, very intelligent, he's schooled in the Dvaita Vedanta, very pious, and you know, if you give him your darshan, so he's a good breed. So Dr. Kapoor said, I sat in the room, and then Prabhupada came in, walked in, sat down, and for 45 minutes he talked about the Brajalila with such feeling and emotion. He stopped, got up, and walked out. He said, and I was converted. He said, he didn't answer. I had all my questions ready to ask him and so forth. And because in the way they went down to this Brajalila, you know, it's not what, is, what we make it out to be. It's not eternal. It's, uh, you know, the philosophy. So, but he talked about it with such feeling that he felt that there must be more to it than what the way they went down to says. So he actually joined the mission. Then he had the fortune to travel for six months from that day on with Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsi Thakur on his tour, his traveling. And every night, 
And every morning after his talk, Prabhupada would ask, any questions? Dr. Kapoor raised his hand. And Prabhupada ignored him for six months. Never answered any of his questions. And then he said that he happened to be sent somewhere for some service. And the area that he was in, it so happened that one of the Shankara charges was a guest of the king. This is when they were still king kingdoms, to some extent, or the British allowed the Raj to have some, you know, facility, some kingdom. And so he went that night, and the Shankar Charge was speaking at the king's palace and all, and the king was the disciple of him and so forth. And so then the Shankar Charge, after he gave his talk, he said, Are there any questions? So Dr. Kapoor raised his hand, and so he started. And then Dr. Kapoor found himself arguing against the Advaita Vedanta from the Vaishnava point of view. And so he was testing, as it turned out, in an opposite way. And so the Shankar and he was found he, he had a response to it. And he'd been and it had to come in the course of hearing so many talks and he didn't you know, Gurudev will put so many things in our heart. We don't always know they're there until the time comes and somebody asks us a question and we go and the answer is there. Oh. Gurudev put that in my heart. Now I'm, now I'm using it in his service, not I know so much. Just see how learned I am. And I turned that guy's head around. I think, oh my Gurudev put this in my heart, now I'm using it for his service. So anyway, he was giving the arguments back and the Shankaracharya was replying and he was giving the argument back and replying and went back and forth like this. And he said it was getting tense because the king was there. All these guys with their hands on their sword. This is the guru of the king. And he says, then I got to, to a point where he changed the ground was his way of talking about it. And they were talking about the you know, Paramarthic reality, and he started talking about the Vyavaharic reality, and this is the, they have to do this. It's, it's, so he knew how to say, but you've changed the ground here, and therefore your argument is invalid. And he looked around, and he just decided, I'll let him win, and I'll keep my head, <laughs> and I'll have my heart also, knowing. Mahabhu had a real strong response to this. So he was defeated, in, so he was intellectually also convinced. But how he got convinced? By Bhakti Siddhanta ignoring all of his hand raising and, and questions. He never answered his questions. So, anyway, under good guidance, then we, we, have, to, we have to do this. And what I mean is that we have to harmonize our head with our heart in such a way that our heart, our heart grows and we get a kind of super logic that supports the heart, and that requires understanding the scripture in, in often a less than literal way, as much as Prabhupada sometimes would emphasize understanding in a literal way, so that you didn't you didn't start interpreting Krishna just out of the whole picture right away. That would be the the tendency. Therefore, you'd say, you know, in this uh, the battlefield is uh, the is, what would they say is the body. You know, Kurukshetra and, and, and all the Hollywood is the senses, but those are valid interpretations on also on on some level. But if you start with that, this is probably seem to be Prabhupada's reasoning. Then the most esoteric fact that Krishna has a form and actually performs these leelas and so forth gets lost. So there is metaphorical meaning and allegorical meaning to draw from it all as well. 
but he wanted to solidify his disciples' standing and really put a cornerstone of Vaishnavism in place in the foundation of their bhakti. And what is that? You can't have bhakti and have this Mayavad idea where Krishna disappears at some point. He's just a story. So he emphasized over and over and over again. So that there's a point to why a great person will emphasize what they emphasize in speaking at the time and circumstance. What was Prabhupada doing was new territory. You know, needed to awaken initial faith. And what are you going to become first? A Kanishta Adhikari. That's something, actually. I mean, I say it's generous, but it's actually, you have faith. It's a big thing, actually, another way of looking at it. But then to grow from there is, re- is required. So then everything is not taken literally. Neither can you. What you find out is you can't take it all literally. It's impossible. It becomes, like I said, when he's five years old, but he's, he should be 10,005 years old. How, how can he be? So many examples like that. And again, like I said, the Bhagavad is like poetry, so... If you know the whole, you know, if you studied Sahitya Dharpana and you studied Bharat's seminal text on Indian aesthetics and and uh, Kavi Prakash and all these all this stuff, and you know why there are so many numbers are used, you know, she was twelve miles long, one eight miles long, or there was a thousand this or nine hundred this, and these numbers are all used in certain ways to make certain points, and I had ten thousand heads, you know. I mean, he was a big-headed guy, you know. Robin had ten heads, and I was like, it's a way of talking about it. At the same time, it can be experienced like that in bhava, in ecstasy, and anyway, and that's that's a particular lens to look at the world through. It's the most wonderful lens. Like I said before, science looks through the, at the world through a particular lens. It's a lens of exploitation. So it's going to speak back to them in a particular way. They're going to find out facts and so forth. But they're not going to get the picture that a, that a lover gets when looking at the world. And I mean lover in a, in a Vedantic sense, which has, a, if you will, a scientific or systematic underpinning to it. And it arises out of, out of knowledge that I'm not the body, for example. This is love, then. As much as we are embodied, we have to exploit. We have to be on the take, so... Moving away from that, and then being a lover, I mean, being a bhakta, he's looking at it through a particular lens. So the world's going to respond back, and you're going to see Vishnu lying in the ocean, universes coming from his body, and why not? <laughs> Nothing in one sense that logically says it couldn't be, but they don't see that when they look at the world with with a lens of exploitation. So, that's a big topic. What else? Any other thoughts? Yes. Maharaj, when Lord Chaitanya exhibited those wonderful symptoms, was it that everybody saw it or just those that were by clearly the fans and the moment that they actually were physical to them or was it just by our business anybody? Well, with um, with explanations, 
that Mahaprabhu gave himself in certain instances, like, I'm an epileptic. And you cited that example. When the Patans, he had fallen into a trance. And then the soldiers came. And this was just out, maybe just outside of Vrindavan. And then the, they, they thought that the people had taken the sannyasi and given him a, a root, a poisonous root, and he had passed out so that they could loot him, so that they could rob him. So the soldiers saw it too. And Mahaprabhu woke from him and said, Oh, I have epilepsy, this happens, or something like that, he said. So that's one instance, at least, in the narrative in which ordinary people were also seeing it. And I never got the impression that it wasn't wasn't seen by by everyone. And then again, in Antilila, he's not with everyone either. He's with a much smaller group. But when he would melt and in Rathayatra that somebody saw but he would melt and go under the door or something like that of the Gambir and, and end up in the ocean and devotees led by Sarupadamata would go and try to find and the fishermen saw something wonderful this is the way it's described so it, it seems like it was uh, somewhat public and then you wonder well I thought you weren't supposed to show these symptoms to everybody but this is the point is they were uncontrollable you tipped over the over the edge. You know, in the beginning, as this develops, then something will cause his spiritual emotions to rise. Something reading in the scripture that can be checked. In the end, you find that this like he sees a rain cloud and falls over, thinking of Krishna. The whole you know the whole world becomes udipana, a stimulus for rasa. This is extraordinary kind of thing. That can't be checked. What else? Uh, do all the devotees who come with us of the Lord have uh, sadhaka day or they come in the spiritual form? Um, you mean Gorlila? Uh, or Krishna? Or is there a distinction? There is a distinction. Gorlila is the, is the sadhaka day, huh? Yeah, Pandavas are kind of a special uh, case. They're kind of like always manifest in the in the worldly lila of the Lord. So they appeared as trees at Radhakund. So, in all these um, great persons, it's uh, there are many different types of. They're all parshadas. They're like Surup Shakti. So they're not like the Jeev Shakti, influenced by Srupa Shakti, in such a way that it can, it can have a form to function in the Leela. But they are constituted of Srupa Shakti, so they have different forms and different Leelas and different forms in the same Leela and, and, uh, and so forth. So that they're kind of very complex, a different kind of soul. We're constituted of Tathasta Shakti, and we can be totally influenced by Srupa Shakti or Maya Shakti. And we influence by Srupa Shakti, then we, we get a form, then we become, uh, it takes shape, that influence. It takes sh- a shape. It's a bhava, a sentiment for participating in a leela. Their position is, is different. But anyway, largely we find Gaur leela is the sadhaka deha. Krishna leela is the siddha deha. But it's a perfected sadhaka deha. 
So the Goswamis have the day of Brahman boys in Gaur-lila, and then the Gopi forms in Radha Krishna Leela. Gaur is like Sadhana Siddhabhumi. It's a land where Siddhas are doing Sadhana. They're all appearing like largely like Sadhakas. Not entirely. You have the mother, the father, you have these other ones. The main persons in the Gaur-lila we're concerned with are the Goswamis because they exhibited not only sadhaka dehas but sadhana. They taught the sadhana. Ramana Roy is not teaching sadhana. Sarbhuma about the charquas, he's a new recruit, he's not teaching, but so many of them. Even Gadadha Pandit, they're not teaching sadhana by their example. But Rupsanath and Goswami, they did this. They were deputed for this purpose. So we shall try to perfect our sadhaka deha by following in their footsteps. So the day we'll, we'll follow that. But the sadhaka deha's perfection is extraordinary in itself. So when you perfect your sadhaka deha, then in that form you can appear in Gorlila. Is that why they say that a pure devotee doesn't even desire to go to the spiritual world? That statement is made that a pure devotee doesn't even desire to go to the spiritual world because he experiences the spiritual world. Yeah, it means that, but it, it means that he has no desire for liberation, but he has desire for preeti, for love. But the desire for liberation gets in the way of that. So he'll be next to the Lord, Samipya. He'll be on the same planet of the Lord, Salokya, if it facilitates his service, his love. This is Bodhi Vaishnavism. Otherwise, he's not interested in that for its own sake. It's attached to bhakti for its own sake. Anything else? Yes? Well, on some level, the Vedic language is very flowering. It's very full of, you know, uh, exaggeration. <laughs> you know, for example, with Mahabharata, Describing the battle of Kurukshetra, so many kind of uh, effective statements like, "Oh, you know, he, he was a warrior that couldn't be vanquished," and you see the next line describe how he was vanquished, or that he was unvanquishable, and, and yet you know, a few, few lines down the road describe his being vanquished. So it seems like there's um, quite a lot of statements that are not literal. You very common sense of The examples you're given are all from the Leela. But anyway, my point is that these are all philosophical books. So they have a message for us. 
no matter how flower they are, how if they're really books of Leela derived from Revelation and so forth, they have a philosophical point to make. Then, if you understand the philosophical point and you apply that in your life, then you come under the, and you come under the influence of Surup Shakti, then you're in a whole different world there. And so then again, then anything's possible there. It's just like the difference between the world of the senses and the world of the mind. In the world of the senses, as Prabhupada used to say, you can have gold and you can have a mountain. But you can't have a golden mountain. If you do, it'll be gone pretty quick. But in the mind, you can have a golden mountain. You can have a diamond mountain. So the difference between the world of the mind and the world of the senses is, is extraordinary. What possibilities lie in the world of the mind compared to the world of the senses? And is the world of the mind more or less real than the world of the senses? You tell me. It would seem that the world of the mind is actually more real than the world of the senses. Because if the mind isn't functioning in the world of the senses, you have no experience whatsoever. <laughs> Do you understand? You know, if you touch something but you're not thinking about it, your mind's somewhere else, to that extent you're not going to feel it. If you go into a situation and you're not paying attention, you're not going to catch the things if it even come in touch with your senses. But another person who's thinking about it, observant, well, you know, you came in and he saw the beautiful vase on the table. You didn't even see it. It was right there. You looked right at it because your mind was somewhere else. So, you can argue like this, the world of the mind, which we tend to take as less real because there are things that are just aren't impossible that go on there because of our absorption in the world of the senses. But actually it's more real, more possibility. Then you go up higher intellect, you come to soul, you come to Vaikunti, you come to Krishna Lok. So yeah, you're right. They write these books and they're all there there's all kind of flowery language and literary device and so forth and and if you take it literally it can be a be a problem. If you understand the meaning, the purport, the philosophy, the point that's being made, you apply it in your life, however, you can go to a world that is so different from the world of our senses, mind, and intellect, that all things are possible. And that, that's kind of what the, these descriptions are trying to say to us. Does that help at all? Or, is that, or does that make, bring more doubts or questions? More abstract it becomes. That's why sometimes some devotees would dismiss certain things as, oh, it just could have been like, could not have been like that. But actually, when you look at it from some perspective, even scientific perspective, so it's fine. Why not? Yeah. Or you look at it historically. You know, 200 years ago, people wouldn't have thought you could fly from, you know, New York to England. You know, they thought the world was flat. So it would have sounded like a total space odyssey or whatever, fantasy. But at the same time, 
to emphasize this kind of argument, just sort of push that in people's faces and, and take it literally and so forth, you're doing yourself a disservice also. And often in doing that, you're not drawing out the philosophical point that you need, and you're just becoming superstitious, and and and, 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 and you're not growing spiritually in, in your understanding. And you're trying to beat people over the head with a literal understanding, and you, and you confine yourself with that also, and it, it becomes difficult to function in the world in a meaningful way, as, for example, as a teacher of Krishna consciousness, or as a person that people take seriously. You know, all kinds of psychological denial comes into play and you become dysfunctional. So, there's a lot to, the, to being on the path here. 